0: You stand up, find somebody, and tell them good morning.
1: Good morning, everybody. Those of us with nowhere to go for the holiday weekend. (laughs) I'm so glad to see you here this morning. Man, it's like a three-minute party, that last song. You walk around, you shake hands, you look at the grumpy people sitting by themselves. We know who you are. But we're glad you're here this morning. Would you take your worship guide and open it? I'll highlight a few things. If you're visiting with us, whether here in the room or on the Internet, we are honored that you would be with us today. We find ourselves this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn there. And, and uh, if you're in the room, though, it'll be on the screen behind us. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'll make sure to read it so that you can see what it says. But uh, we are awfully glad that you're here and, uh, and pray that you're blessed having been with us. A few things that we want to highlight, upcoming activities. This morning, uh, if you have not registered to vote, uh, we are non-political at Carpenter's Way. If you've been here more than a week, you know that. But we do want you to be involved. That's one of the great things about being an American. God wants us as his children to bless <clears throat> our culture and our country, and this is the way we do that, by voting. Uh, and uh, we are, appreciate so much Sharon Kennedy who is a voter registrar, uh, uh, signing people up. We've had quite a few do that, and um, we're not going to have a lot more dates of that, so if you are here this morning after church and you haven't, you need to change the address, location, or if you need to sign up to vote, we would encourage you to do that this morning following the service. It, uh, the table is right against the library, so you go out those doors and right to the left, uh, it'll be right there. I uh, want to highlight also that uh, we have our next new members class, September 23rd, upcoming uh, how you become a member of Carpenter's Way is four times a year we offer this uh, what is Carpenter's Way class. It takes place in the library and we basically go, you'll meet all the elders, you'll meet all the staff and uh, we go through what we believe, why we believe it, how we lead, how we make decisions all of those things are in that class. That takes place on September 23rd it starts at 9.30 and goes till about 11. 45-ish or so, so the Parallels Children's Ministry and all, and if you've been wanting to learn more about Carpenter's Way or you want to become a member, this is the way you do that, so we would encourage you to participate on September 23rd. Also want you to note in the middle there that uh, women's Bible studies begin um, very soon, so all the information is in there about that. Do you have anything you want to say this morning? Nope. Sign up if you're interested. Look at those. Uh, You can sign up at the women's ministry table. You go out those back doors. It's right straight against the wall. If you have any questions, you can ask my lovely wife uh, or call the office. We would be glad to answer your questions. Only other thing is if you have high school or junior high kids, next Friday is our first uh, post-game party uh, down in the student room. So please Take note of that. I'm going to ask our ushers at this time to come forward as we prepare for our offering. And as they do, I want to remind you also that we are in the middle of our nominations for church officers. Uh, our year is January 1st to December 31st, So, uh, but we have our annual business meeting in November. So how this happens is we have three leadership teams at Carpenters Way. Our elder board, which are pastors, um, non-vocational and vocational pastors. They oversee all the, all the vision of the church. Uh, there is one open position there. They, they function on a six-year term uh, and the qualifications are in Scripture and you can read them right there. But we also have two deacon teams, Finance and Mission Investment. Both of them need one additional person and if you know a member of Carpenter's Way who meets the qualifications, those are also listed there in First Timothy 3, 8 to 13. You can fill this out, put it in an offering plate, drop it by an elder, give it to a pastor. Put it in that offering box to the right of the door as you leave, and we will make sure we take them into nomination. And then what happens is the elders pray over those for the next couple weeks, and uh, we choose from the nomination list those that we feel are, are basically already serving in those areas and uh, who we feel God would be bringing into leadership for a few years, and uh, then we start talking with them. So that's how that process goes, but uh, it will end, I think, next week's the last week. So please please be involved in that process. So let's uh, commit our time to the Lord, our service, and ask God to bless us. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we can gather here, Thank thankful that we live in a time when we can move around, and I know we got a lot of people on vacation, and, and uh, people who are enjoying family, and at the lake, and God, thank you that we live in a time where we can do stuff like that, and thank you for school, and it looks, for the most part, like everybody's surviving a new school year, and We pray you would encourage the teachers that are already a little nervous about the year, or the students, and Lord, what we really desire is to know you better. I thank you for family, I thank you for uh, time off, and I pray that those who are away would be safe and enjoy each other and get along, and the Father, you'd bring them back to us and uh, healthy and ready to grow, and for those of us here this morning or watching on the internet, would you just, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us from your word this morning. Uh, certainly there are some emo, uh, emotion and and uh, opinion that I'm going to share. But, Father, those aren't the things that last forever. It's your word. So we ask that You would your Holy Spirit would speak to us today in a very special way. Uh, thank you for those who are about to give. We pray you would uh, bless them for their faithfulness and reward them. Uh, Lord, just, just help them find joy in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.
0: The shaking, the weary waking to the God who moves the mountains, the God who moves. we bro
1: You can be seated. Man, I needed to hear that song before this morning's message. Uh, you know, it's uh, Christianity is such a part of our culture, just like it was with the Jews, that at times we forget that it's his breath in our lungs that pours out his praise, that we're not in control of this thing. And uh, we forget, we forget that. You, you'll see why in this morning's message. It's uh. You know, one of the reasons why we do verse by verse is so that I can't pick and choose the text or the title or the themes. It says what it says. If we still believe as an evangelical group that the Bible is God's authoritative word of God, right? And there is a doubt. Not here, but there is question. And uh, so I I want you to pray because I want you to hear from the Holy Spirit this morning. Sometimes some messages, some messages... I mean, I I pray that they're all important, but some just uh, are more important than others. And this, boy, this is an important message. And it's tough. Some of you are going to, your flesh is going to push back on it. But I just want to remind you you don't have the luxury of pushing back on God. You can try, you can find a church that'll tell you you can, but it doesn't make it any more true. God is holy, He is God. God is God. God's God. Jesus was very clear I was sent by my Father follow me and most people walked away and his response to them walking away wasn't never mind let's change it here let me give you a toy he says choose you this day and as a child of god you still have to choose what you if you believe that he is good and worthy of our trust worthy of our trust because he does stuff that that you're not going to like and this story today is reflects one of those stories that most times the church tries to ignore because it's tough. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to start with praying because what matters is what God has to say to us today. So let's bow. And I would like you, if you are God's kid, I would like you to ask your dad to speak to you this morning from the inside, not just your ears from what I say, but from him. If there are things that have blinded your ears, sins that you are indulging in right now, I'd like you to thank Him for His grace and tell Him for the next 45 minutes you don't want that to be a distraction. You want to hear from Him. And now I ask that you pray for me. That my flesh would not be would not be in control of what's about to be said, but that the God who has put breath in my lungs, that every word I exhale will be from the King, the throne of God. And for those, Father, who do not know you, may today be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The nation of Israel was unique, and uh, I I hate to even compare the two, but maybe so we emotionally can. It was unique in the same way that the United States is unique, Um, and in the way that the British colonies used to be unique. There was a time in history when God's Word was central to the culture and to time, and to the Jewish people, unfortunately, they went the other way, and they began worshiping the religion of Judaism instead of the God of Judaism. But for the most part, the nation was unique. And you see that in Psalm 20. It's it's titled as a Psalm of David. But in history, we're not sure if David wrote it or somebody wrote it about David and the nation. And David just put it in his book of Psalms. But you'll understand why when we read it. Psalm 20 says this. In times of trouble, may the Lord answer your cry. May the name of the God of Jacob keep you safe from all harm. It is possible, and many theologians believe, that somebody is writing this as a prayer about David. So he's praying that, David, as you rule us, as you lead this nation, may God be your protector. Verse 2, may he send you help from his sanctuary and strengthen you from Jerusalem. May he remember all your gifts and may look favorably on your burnt offerings. May he grant your heart's desires and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy when we hear of your victory and raise a victory banner in the name of our God. May the Lord answer all your prayer. Now I know that the Lord rescues his anointed king, he will answer him from his holy heaven and rescue him by his great power. Verse 7, and this is the key here. Some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. That's what set the nation of Israel apart. Those nations who boast of the chariots and horses will fall down and collapse, but we will raise up and stand firm. Give victory to our king, O Lord. Answer our cry from hell. What an amazing prayer for David by somebody who's watching. He and his army outnumbered, outarmed with his enemies confident that David and his people will soon be defeated. But towards the end, towards the end, the the writer proclaims where the national hope comes from. While some boast in their chariots and horses and their military weaponry, we, the nation of Israel, God's people who are called by His name, we will boast in the name of the Lord our God, they said. And they went forward with that. May our boasting, children of God, be in the Lord. May our boasting be in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in our plans, not in our dreams, our desires, not in our abilities, not in our favorite writers or our favorite theologians. May our hope and our dreams not be in our churches or our political party or our wealth. May our hope and our dreams not be in chariots and horses and stuff. May it be in God alone. That is my prayer for us as a church. May we boast only in the name of the Lord, not our programming. This is where David, the man who God says is a man after his own heart, placed his hope for himself and those that he stayed awake worrying about at night as their king. There's no more clear... Placed in today's text, the context of today's text where we see that. 2 Samuel 6 1 says, Then David again gathered his elite troops in Israel, 30,000 of them in all, and he led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. To bring you up to speed for those who haven't been with us, David is now king of a united Israel. All 12 tribes have decided to make him king. And he has now taken the city of Jerusalem, the ancient city of Jerusalem, that was under Canaanite control by uh, by the Jebusites. And he took it and he invaded in last week's text. And for the past 20 years after defeating the city, he builds it up. This text today is about 20 years into the rebuilding of the city, towards the end. It's nearly complete, and it's time for him to unite the nation spiritually as well. So he decides that it's time to bring back into the middle of the capital city the Ark of the Covenant. I want to remind you that while some nations boasted in chariots and their military weaponry, David and his nation boasted in the lamb of the Lord their God. So it would make sense that they would bring the Ark back into the mix, back into the capital, You remember the Ark of the Covenant because it was made famous throughout history by the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie in the 80s. It actually contained the original stone tablets upon which God had written the Ten Commandments. That's where it gets its name, the Ark of the Covenant. Just remember this. That at the base of Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up under the mountain and he comes back down, he comes down, yes, with two tablets, but for, for a month or so, God has been instructing him on the covenant that the people are going to make with God. Once he comes down the mountain, the people agree to the covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant, or what you know as the Old Covenant. And that is what we have in the Torah. The Torah is simply, uh, it is the Jewish scriptures, but it's actually the first five books of your Old Testament. You know, you have five or six of them on your shelf at home. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the Torah. And it contains the law of God. It contains a message of redemption. It contains the religious law. It contains how when they sinned against God, he would, they could find forgiveness. That's the Torah. David has now united the nation. He's built the city. And now he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. Not only is it uh, within the ark is it found the uh, Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, but it also contained a jar of manna from the wandering years in the wilderness, but it also for a time, apparently not forever, but it also contained Aaron's rod that the Lord had made bud during that time as well. This ark was the place of divine revelation as well to the nation. in fact, It was literally the throne upon which the Spirit of God would sit. And the high priest could go and talk to God on behalf of the king or on behalf of the nation or in in, a day of atonement. But this was the throne of God on the earth where he literally would sit. It was a place of divine revelation. For over 75 years in this time, the ark had been gone from the Hebrew tabernacle. It had been stolen by the Philistines who God caused to be sick for taking it. Remember the day Dagon fell over? And they became sick and many of them died. Why? Because they mishandled the ark. And so many of them start to die that they put it on a cart and they send it back into the Hebrew territory. And the first village it goes to, the first village is Beth Shemesh, and they didn't handle it right either. And so because of that, many of them start to die. And you'll recall because I told you that they got hemorrhoids, and that's what Scripture says. They got boils on their backside. Some even die, and they freak out, so they put it on a cart and they send it on to, uh, to Kirim Jerem, now known in this text as Balaam of Judah, where David now finds the ark. It had been there for between 75 and hundred years, historians say. There are three reasons that appear to be the reason David brings the ark back. Number one, obviously he wants the nation to worship God in Jerusalem near the national palace. Up to this point, the place of worship was over here, or over there, or a change based upon the leadership of Israel, and now he wants to centralize the nation. Not only will the palace be there, but also a place of worship. The second reason is you'll know in the next couple of weeks that David wants to build a, a temple, a place worthy of God. And he—he he is going. this is the first step of bringing back the sacred articles of the temple, the most sacred here. He's going to bring it back. He's preparing. He's built a tent, it says, He's built a tent called the tabernacle. It's a permanent tabernacle, but that is where he wants the ark to stay until the temple is built, a permanent place for the Lord, he says. Finally, David wanted to drill into the psyche of the nation that while some nations boast in their chariots and horses, this nation will boast in the the name of the Lord. He wants to drill that into them. And so with that in mind, 2 Samuel chapter 6 happens. David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all, he led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart. That's nice. And brought it to Ab- 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 from Abinadab's house, which is on a hill. Uzziah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the Ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments. There were lyres, and harps, tambourines, castanets and cymbals. Man, this must have been something to see. If you can picture it in your mind, this national parade represented the marriage of all 12 tribes. And the marriage of all 12 tribes was no more keenly seen than in the 30,000 great warriors that he talks about here that are made up of the best warriors of all 12 tribes. Remember that the nation of Israel, the Hebrew nation, wasn't a a cohesive group. It is made up of 12 different tribes that choose to come together under the authority of a king or God. And up to now, or up to David, they, they had not come together. For a while they were under Saul, but even in that they were divided. In the middle of this parade was a new beautiful cart built just for this purpose with two priest's sons. They themselves would have been priests. For those of you who've been with us in this study, you remember that Abinadab is the only surviving priest in the family of priests when Saul has them all killed because they don't serve him. Remember that? Abinadab sneaks away and David gives him a quarter and out of that he becomes David's personal high priest for his, uh, when he's wandering in the wilderness. He's been at David's side all these years, so when the ark comes back, he takes the ark in, he raises his sons who also would have been priests, and history tells us, to the best of our knowledge, that these were godly folks. These were people on the right, hand of, right side of Jehovah worship. They were not evil men. And they cared for the, for the ark for the last generation. And now you see them behind the 30,000 warriors. One is in front of the cart, one is behind it, guiding it, watching over it, it's being transported. It was a natural thing for them to do. They'd been guarding and providing and protecting that thing for nearly 100 years. Following the ark on the cart were David. And a throng of Hebrews, it doesn't tell us how many, it refers to them as all, so it tells us that that is a large number of them who are singing songs, dancing in this 10-mile route from Abinadab's house to the tent that David has erected for this beautiful ark in the middle of Jerusalem. What a sight that must have been. To give you even more of an idea of what is reasonable to think, it is possible. I want to remind you that last week, when all of the, 12, the other 11 tribes that were not under David's authority, that did not submit to him, when they finally come to him at the beginning of chapter 5 and ask him to be their king, it, it records in 1 uh, Chronicles that there were somewhere around 340,000 of them. It is reasonable to believe that 20 years later, there's at least that many of these Hebrews that are following this ark. This was a massive line of humanity that are walking along this this incredible parade. Verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzziah, one of the priests that's protecting it, reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzziah, And God struck him dead because of this. So Uzziah died right there beside the ark of God. Wow. Kind of harsh. Honestly, you may or may not have heard that story because the truth is, in the way we do preaching today, where we just talk about themes and things that make us happy, we like to ignore that story. For most Christians who've looked at this, this story is frustrating and it's hard to understand. I mean, the reality is, there certainly appears to be a sincere God desire among these people, including the priests. They're they're going to re-centralize God in the life of the nation. What could possibly be wrong with that? I mean, they're worshiping. They even build a new cart. It's probably made of really, really good wood. And it seems unthoughtful of God at best to kill one of his priests for just simply steadying the ark, it says. I mean, what does God want? The ark to fall off the cart, open up with all that stuff all over the ground? Some of you have been uh, recently studying a book by Bill Johnson, the pastor of a fringe religious group that claimed to be evangelical but denied the deity of Christ, making them a cult out of Northern California. One of the tenets of their doctrine is that God is good He wrote a book by that name. And so anything not good, as defined, I guess, by any individual, never comes from God. Not only does he not do bad things, as people define them, but he doesn't even allow bad things to happen. All bad things, he says in his book, are the direct result of the hand of Satan. Well, here's the problem with that. This says in 2 Samuel 6, 7, that the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzziah and God struck him dead because of this. God killed him. You may like it. You may not like it. It may not fit what you wish was true. But God struck Uzziah the priest, one of the sons of Abinadab, who stood with David and who cared for the ark for 75 years to 100 years, a worshiper of God as far as we know, who's trying to return the ark to the center of the nation according to this text. God strikes him dead here because he simply reaches out and steadies the thing to keep it from falling off the cart. It is very unsettling for me as a Bible student and as your pastor, living in the Bible belt, that I'm surrounded by people in this culture who claim that they believe God's word reveals who he is how he interacts with people, and state that this book where we find truth, when we come to stories like that, we skip them, or we don't understand them within their context, or don't even try to, because we don't like it or understand it. Which, by the way, is exactly why Uzziah dies this day. It's exactly the same thing. You see, God commanded the human king, whoever that was, in the nation of Israel, God commanded the human king that what he was to do every day, not often, But every day, his responsibility was to study the Torah, specifically the the agreement that God and the the Jews had made to each other. You see, the Hebrew people, if you remember back to the base of Mount Sinai, God said, will you come into covenant with me After uh, after having Moses read it? And the people said in unison, everybody in one voice, we will. He asked them two or three times, we will. Well, as you know, the nation of Israel didn't like God being their God, so they wanted a human king. Well, God had already, knowing that that would happen, within the Torah established uh, guidelines for the king. And one of the guidelines was you need to study the scriptures. You're not unfamiliar with this because David would write, I meditate on your laws night and day. And remember, your Sunday school teacher said, see how wonderful that is? That's why we memorize scripture. That's not accurate. That has nothing to do with it. What he is saying is, I study your law night and day. That's my responsibility. That's my job as a king. Just like I have a job description as a pastor. The scriptures give me a job description. It has nothing to do with programming. It has nothing to do with making sure that this room is full. What it says is, my job as a pastor is to correct to uh, to teach, rebuke, and train in righteousness, to stay faithfully to the Word of God. That's my job description. Everything else that you may want me to do or I may want to do, that's secondary to that. That is how you evaluate a pastor. Is he correcting, rebuking, training in, uh, in righteousness and te- teaching the scriptures in and out of, out of season in, in, in its context? That's how you evaluate. Not whether or not I can convince you that I'm right, but whether or not I keep pushing you to the scripture. And some of you are looking for a church and some of you online don't go to church anymore. And I'm here to tell you that the reason the church is so screwy is because we have left the simple understanding of the word of God. And it's on every side of the equation from the super fight-and-fundy right-wing Baptist Republican you know, independent fundamental King James only dude, who by the way has to answer the question, what did they do in 1610 before they had the 1611 English version of the Bible? And what if somebody doesn't read English? Some of you are giggling. Let me add more to that. The King James version you have in your hand that you love so much isn't the same King James that was written and translated in 1611. That one had the Apocrypha in it and the Pseudepigraphy. If you don't know what that is, quit arguing for King James only. You don't know what you're talking about. It's just true. And I'm being a butt. I know that. It's all over the Old Testament, that word. I use the clean version of it. But at some point in today's culture, we've got to get back to what's true. Everybody's throwing all these ideas out there, and they sound good because they feed your flesh. But the truth is, the responsibility of King David was to make sure that the people who wanted him king over God still kept their covenant relationship with God. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? They had made agreement with God. God wanted the king that he didn't want to have, but they demanded, and he gave him a human king, and he said, no, king, you make sure you study the scriptures. And what is interesting is that as the king of the nation who studied the scriptures every day... He would have known from Exodus 25, Numbers chapter 4, Numbers chapter 7, and various other places in the Scriptures, especially what happens within their lifetime when the Philistines put the ark on a cart, that nobody was ever supposed to take the most holy, sacred articles in the the tabernacle that were found in the Holy of Holies. Nobody was supposed to touch those things. Nobody. In fact, there are instructions in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, in how you move these things. And you know this because it was the pivotal moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They weren't supposed to touch it. They put the poles in the loops so that nobody would touch it. And when they carried it, it was only the priest's family that were supposed to carry it. And at this point in history, David chooses to be more like the Philistines than more like God's man. How can I say that? Because the Philistines moved it on a cart. And that's what David does. He disobeys God's clear instructions never to touch the ark. I know what you're thinking. Well, should he just let it fall? Yeah. Actually, he shouldn't have moved it improperly. You know, one of the interesting things in this story to me is we don't have David asking God if he wants it in Jerusalem anyway yet. And even if that's not a problem... He should at least move it the way God moves it, not the way he wants to move it. But that sounds vaguely familiar to me because we've got people all over the place just claiming things that have nothing to do with God or even their human experience. You see, the truth is, well, to be clear here, David, Uzziah, and the nation are doing what they feel is best in this situation. And in their defense, they're worshiping And you know, everybody's mama says, you might not be going to the church I wish you were going to. You may be going even to a bad church, but at least you're going to church. That's how we've always thought. And there's kind of this feeling in the nation. I mean, they're worshiping, and and I would say that their hearts are even right here, just like Cain's. You, You remember Cain, right? He's the child of Adam and Eve who decides that he wants to worship. That's a good thing, he and his brother. They go to the right God, the right place, at the right time. But God meets with Cain and says, Cain, why are you doing evil? Go back and do the right thing. He brought the wrong sacrifice. Hey, come on, God, lighten up. He's worshiping, right? He's coming to you. He's not going to some guy he made up. He's coming to you. He's doing the right thing, right time. He's just doing it in his own way. I remember in school learning, uh, in church, learning that the reason... you know what? I don't want to get off on Cain, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. You see, family, the problem is with David is in all of his leadership, in all of his rebuilding, in all of his thoughts, David forgot one simple fact. God doesn't belong to David. David belongs to God. David may have been a a man after God's heart. They may have been very close. But David isn't God. David isn't the Holy One. He didn't create the universe. He's not the Trinity. He's not even the fourth member of the Trinity. He's his servant. David, even good intention, forgot himself. He forgot himself. And Uzziah dies because of it. He forgets himself. Just as God had said would take place in the Torah if they transported the ark inappropriately, it even said, you'll die. David and the Hebrews here are acting like the Philistines. They're not acting like God's people. And just like happened with the Philistines, when they mistreat the ark, people die. Uzziah died here. And by the way, I find it interesting here that there's no record of whether or not David prayed about it. I don't know if this was a good move or bad move because in a few minutes he's going to move it and God's going to bless him. But I want to make it clear. If this story rings offensive and confusing to many Christians today, it's because, well, we have a tendency to think that God is unfair and arbitrary to kill a guy like that. It's because we too have forgotten ourselves. We have forgotten ourselves. We are not... We are not gods. We're not little deities. We're His children. By His choosing. God does not belong to us. We belong to Him. We don't get to manipulate the system, how He runs His universe, or even what He does and doesn't do. Our job is to get to know Him. Our daddy in His mercy and grace, invites us to call Him, who is the Holy One. He's not just the Lion of Judah. We love the little lamb idea. He's not just the little lamb. He is, in fact, the Lion of Judah. He is a fierce and ferocious King of kings, Lord of lords, the creator of all things with words. He is the King of the universe, and we are forgetting ourselves. How dare we write books Preach messages and think things about God to sell Him to a world that wants nothing to do with absolute truth in a way to fill our churches. God is who He is. In fact, He said, I am. When Moses said, Who should I tell, is telling me to speak to them? He said, Tell Him I am, sent you. I am is the answer to every question. You've heard this. You've heard this here because I hear it all the time. Will I just choose to believe in a God who? What does that mean? What does that say about truth for you? Or how about, I refuse to worship a God who treats people like fill in the blank. My answer is, then don't. When we start telling God how he should or should not behave, when we decide that when God says don't touch the ark, he means don't touch it a lot. Only touch it if you need to protect it. When we start deciding that, people die, whether we like it or not. And I assure you that God in heaven this morning, when knew that I would be in this text today, isn't going, oh, no, not that story. That was just a bad day. We were grumpy. The coffee wasn't on. He is meek. He is a lamb. But he is also the ferocious lion of Judah, and he is not to be trifled. Some of you are thinking, boy, there's the Baptist in him. Not Baptist. This is the word of God. This is his self-revelation to us. Some people say, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. God seems to be kind of grumpy. Then he dies, his son comes and he dies, and he becomes the gentle one over there. We like, we like that guy. We like that guy. Acts 5. There was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. Now let me be clear. These are Christians under the new covenant. After Acts 2, inhabited by the Holy Spirit with the sealing of eternity. He brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount with his wife consent, but he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away? How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us. You're lying to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell on the floor dead. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. To be clear, Satan didn't kill him. The Holy Spirit did. Then some young men got up. They wrapped him in a sheet, took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for this land? We're so appreciative. Thank you. We need it. The church needs it. Yeah, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could you two, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? Notice it's test the spirit of the Lord. The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door And they too will carry you out. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. (laughs) Their Lamb of God that they worshiped. I mean, they brought some money. What's weird about this story is Peter basically says, You didn't even have to lie to us. We didn't even ask for this money. You gave it free will. But it looked better to say it was all of it. They were embarrassed. You know, peer pressure. They chose to give some and then lie. But their lamb was also the lion of Judah. And like Uzziah and David and Cain and Ananias and Sapphira, they forgot themselves. They forgot themselves. And they took God lightly just like Eli had at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Remember that? Remember what God said, why he removed him? Why he was going to kill him and his sons? Because they took God lightly. It doesn't say they rejected him. It doesn't say they blasphemed him even. It just said that he took him lightly. And because of that, his boys were defaming the tabernacle, the place of worship. God says, that's enough. Because of that, I'm removing you and your boys. Saul is removed because he took God lightly. Do you remember? Saul did what God said. God told him to attack the Ammonites. And he does. He attacks them. He only keeps the really cool stuff for himself. That's all they did for his military and encouraged them. They kept the good stuff. And Samuel says to Saul, why didn't you kill them all? Oh, it was a good idea, man, and encouraged them. You know, this is what we do. And come on, we, we did what God said. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. And now God is removing your anointing. God is not a man he is a God, and He deserves not to be trifled with, and we are trifling with Him. David is trifling with Him. He forgot himself. Uzziah the priest, who knew who knew how he was supposed to carry that ark, he knew it. He still trifled with God. You see, even if the community trifles with God, it shouldn't be done. He is the Holy One, even if we have pictures of Him in our house. He's God. All three of Him. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1 tells us, is the creator of the universe. Hebrews tells us that the Father actually worships the Son. It tells us in chapter 2 and 3 of Hebrews, it says, Your throne, O God, endures forever. It's the Father talking to the Son. Jesus Christ is seen throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the Old Testament. He's he's, he's there. It tells us that He was in existence before the creation of the world. The Father was here planning our salvation before we even sinned. And the Holy Spirit was hovering upon the earth, preparing to accomplish what he and the two other members of the Trinity were going to do. And why? Because he loves us. And you know exactly what this is about because if you raised a kid, your kid's trifled with you. They misunderstand the difference between your love for them and your demand that they let you run the house, right? And if you're a good parent, and there are fewer and fewer of us, Fewer and fewer is not a word. There are fewer and fewer of them now. But if you are a good parent and your children trifle with your authority and you want them to understand that authority is something to be respected, you don't let them get away with that. And so throughout history, there have been significant periods of time where somebody trifles openly and clearly with God and God wants to make a statement. You don't mess with me. You don't lie to me. You don't care. You don't Build a new a new cart when I say carry the ark. You don't bring the wrong sacrifice when I tell you what to sacrifice. Because my children, I'm God. You're not. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. You know it's interesting. The church has forgotten Jesus' message. Jesus' message in the Gospels was choose you this day. It wasn't please 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 follow me. Please, my daddy sent you to make you mine. Actually, after he feeds the 5,000 plus women and children, so there's probably fifteen or 20,000 people, they start leaving the next day because the food is gone and he won't feed them again. And Peter approaches Jesus and says, Master, they're leaving. Don't you care? And do you remember Jesus' response? I care a lot. Let's put on a circus. If we get little donkeys and camels, maybe they'll stay. They just need to hear. No, Jesus didn't say that. What Jesus said was, Are you going to follow them, Peter? well that, that was not the discussion but no I'm not going to follow why aren't you going to follow Peter because where else can we find eternal life and then the Lord says the Holy Spirit taught you that and basically goes on And this is in Mark's version of the Bible that won't sell free then shut up and follow me and if you don't think Jesus feels like that for his children in the New Testament you haven't read the teachings of Jesus which is why when we're done with 2 Samuel we're going to go to the book of Matthew because I think it's time for us to learn the teachings of Jesus He was loving and gracious and called all men to repentance. But when he walked away, he moved on to the next town. It's almost like we're dependent upon a mass group of people to believe that what we're doing is the best thing. And I want to tell you something. What people think is irrelevant because God is. And he has revealed himself to us in his word. And we don't need to apologize for it. We don't need to explain it away. We don't even need to understand why God killed Josiah, but we do. God killed Uzziah because, God take, because David took him lightly. And if this frustrates you, you're in good company because look at verse 8. David was angry. <laughs> what? You know what it tells me that David was angry when God killed Uzziah? It tells me he forgot himself. David was angry. Why? Because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzziah. David's not angry at Uzziah because he disrespected him. He's not angry because David didn't tell him the right thing to do and he, dis, he disobeyed. David is angry at God because he killed Uzziah in the same way that most Christians are angry at God. Why would you do that? It seems so arbitrary. Why did you give me a child with special needs? Why did you give me cancer? Why is this? Why aren't you answering my prayer? You said in Scripture that if I, I speak to a mountain, it'll move. And I haven't seen one mountain move. Are you not there anymore? That's David's anger. How dare you, king of the universe, one who anoints me and calls me, how dare you kill that guy. He's my friend. He named that place, in fact, Perez Uzziah, which means to burst out against Uzziah. That's not a flattering title if you're not clear. As it is still called to this day. So at the time of writing, that's still the name it was known by. David was now afraid of the Lord. Yeah. He was now afraid of the Lord and he asked, how could I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? Wow. That may or may not, but I'm going to say that gives us a little insight into David's thinking. I'm sure when David and God met, he said, hey, buddy, I really love you. And we're going to see this in next week's chapter. But something's going on in David. David forgot himself. He's high-fiving himself. He's rebuilt Jerusalem. He's the king of the nations. Everybody's loving him. Lots of people, lots of success. He's bringing the ark back. But it is interesting. God never asked him to protect the ark. Not once. God never asked him to care for the ark. Not once. He asked him to obey. I mean, even if it is his job to care for the Ark with the priests, even if that is his job, his primary job is to obey God as he cares for the Ark. Do you see what I'm saying? You understand how good Satan is. Satan gets us close to the truth while getting us to live a lie. So David decided not to move the Ark of the Lord into the city of David. (laughs) To me, that's a sign that God never instructed him to do it in the first place or he would have rebuilt, started over. Instead... He takes it to the house of Obed-Edom in Gath. The Ark of the Lord remained there in Odom-Edom's house for three months and the Lord blessed Odom-Edom Obed-Edom, whatever, weird name and his entire household. So again when I looked at this this week what this is is they're about halfway through the journey or a quarter of the way through the journey. It's a ten mile walk from where the Ark was to the city of Jerusalem where God has built a tent or David has built a tent. They get about a quarter of the way there. Uzziah dies. And he looks for the nearest house that can host the ark because he's mad at God. He's not going to take it the rest of the way. And he goes, if I can't live, if I can't decide how this should be moved, I'm not bringing it home. Doesn't it sound like your six-year-old? Then I'm not eating dinner if I can't have a cookie first. I refuse to believe in a mom and a dad that won't let me have cake for breakfast. I refuse to believe that you love me if you don't give me everything I want. You're allowed to believe anything you want. Nonetheless, I'm still king of this house. I remember that conversation with Annie. She was learning an awful lot from Connie Dubose <laughs> and Karen Watson. She uh, wanted to do something, and I informed her that I was the head of the house. And she said, Well, God has given me gifts and talents and skills, and I'm going to use them. And I said, Well, I'm governor. And I'm under his authority, and you're not going to do that. And if you do, it's going to be a very painful experience. Because the truth is, Anna Wilkie doesn't run my house any more than Zach Wilkie runs my house. To be truthful with you, any more than I run my house. What? I thought you were a masculine, sexist pig who believed in male leadership. Yes, I am. And I do. Hashtag, oh yeah. But please understand, as a man of God, I don't run my house. God runs my house. It's my job to study the Scripture, so I know how to run my house. Men, if you're not in the Word, you're not God's man for your home. Because your job isn't to do it in a practical, realistic, and fundamentally, culturally acceptable way. Your job is to do it God's way. Well, I don't know what God's way is. That's because you haven't studied. The first step to doing it God's way is being God's man. And in East Texas, most Christianity is a woman's thing. God's way. Come on, Mark, you're taking too much out of this. He stuck the ark on a cart. God told him to carry the ark. So now he's afraid of the Lord. He's upset and he's wondering, how can I take care of this thing? David forgot that he was God's. God was not his Do you remember that? Look at 1 Corinthians 6. You do not belong to yourself. Next verse. Do you remember that, Romans 10, 9, and 10, how you get saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Oh, yeah, but that's not as important as accepting his offer to forgive your sin. It it seems like they're connected. The truth is you're identifying him as king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of all things. You're not putting yourself on the throne. You're putting him on the throne. That's what happens when you get saved. You see, salvation isn't about feeling sad about bad things you've done or guilty about things you've done. Everybody feels guilty when they get caught. Watch Live PD. It's amazing how drug addicts always break into crying and forget repentance. Or actually sorrow. But repentance is a different animal. Repentance says, I've been doing it my own way. Now I'm going to do it your way. It's turning around and following God. That's repentance and that's required for salvation. What's required for salvation is declaring Him Lord. And that doesn't mean that you have to submit every area. You you don't know all the areas of your life. That's part of spiritual growth. But at the moment of salvation, you're saying, you're God, I'm not. You're the Savior, I'm not. You're the only one who can save me. I can't. You see, it's part of freedom. It's part of understanding grace and mercy. Thank you for not giving me what I deserve, and thank you for giving me what I do not. That's what salvation is. Salvation isn't you and God hooking up for life. Salvation is understanding that he is the king of the universe, and your job is to submit to that and proclaim it to anybody and everybody who wants it. Well, well people don't like that anymore. Then they don't have to walk with him. We all struggle with submission. Zach, Annie, Mark, Julie, you, me, David, Uzziah, uh, Cain, Abel, you go through the list. And we all struggle with it. That's not the question. The question is who wins? That's the question. In Bethel's theology, which some of you are studying right now, let me be clear. What they're doing is taking God off the throne and putting you on the throne. If you look at the scriptures, and forgive me, but there's about eight or nine of you, so let me be clear with you. It's on the verge of heresy. Because what they're doing is they're taking an archaic verse from Genesis chapter 3 about taking dominion over the earth, and they're actually taking God off the sovereign throne. And what they couch it at is God may be in command, but he's not in control. I have no idea what that means. If you have a three-year-old kid and you figure out how to be in command but not in control, I, I don't know. You see, God is both in command and in control. And if I step out of what he commands me to do, then I pay the consequences. And it may not be death, but it will be bad consequences. If I commit adultery, God does not reject me as his child, but boy, Julie may reject me as her husband. That's not God's plan, it's not his will, it's not even his desire for my life, but that's what happens. And if I continue down that path, there may be a time God will deal with me in a direct confront, frontal approach. Where do you see that in Scripture? Okay, I'll tell you where I see it in Scripture. The church of Thyatira, remember that? There's a woman in the church named Jezebel who's teaching false doctrine in the church, and people are buying into it. And Jesus writes a letter to the church and says, Jezebel is about to be put on a sickbed, asking her to repent, and if she doesn't, I will take her life. This doesn't sound like a normal Mark, Pastor Mark happy message. It is wonderful knowing that God's in charge because Trump sure isn't. And your boss isn't. And your church isn't. God's in control. And if you are a friend of God, that's a good thing. Bad things might happen to your experience in life, but God is good and He will fix it 10 seconds after death. That's the good thing. God is sovereign. That's what the whole Old Testament and New Testament is about. When when Jesus, one of the 12 of Jesus' boys, turned his back on him, Jesus didn't go, oh no, I'm losing one-twelfth of my group. Jesus wasn't worried. He knew that the Father had a plan and it was to save mankind through his death. And he would even use Judas to get him to the cross. God's path is never thwarted. Our free will can make it a mess for us, but it will not change his plan. Why? Because he's God. The nation of Israel this day didn't cease to be God's people. They just ceased to obey, which they've been doing for dozens of years. Verse 12. All right, I'm going to wrap it up here. I know some of you think I'm just getting going. I could. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So he's got some spies going Hey, man. Remember how he had a bad garden out back? The tomatoes are as big as your house, man. And the watermelon, it's crazy. The chickens there actually fry themselves. (laughs) So David went there. (laughs) Let's go. And he brought the ark of God from the house of Odom, Edom, Obed, Edom. Don't worry about how I pronounce these plays. And he brings it to the city of David with great celebration. You're going to love this. Verse 13. After the men who were... Oh, he did know. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might wearing the priestly garment. So let's let's pause. Let me tell you what happens here. David isn't sure if God wants him to move the ark or not. So what he does is he goes back and he does it the right way. He has the priests pick it up. They put the poles in. They go, okay, we're going. We're going to Jerusalem, boys. All right, let's go. Everybody lines up who's there. All the people. They start dancing. Music starts going. They walk six feet. David goes, stop. Put it down. Now we're going to sacrifice to make sure this is what the Lord wants us to do. the Lord says okay because that's what you do when you understand that you're just the kid and he's in charge that's what you do when you understand you're not really the king the danger of the church is we begin to read our own press releases like we're the arbiters of truth it's not our job to explain away things it's our job to teach them Well, how can I teach him if I don't understand the Trinity? I think the mistake in the church for the last 600 years has been trying to understand him, and when somebody understands him differently, we start killing each other. Maybe we should just take it at what it says and go on. Well, that makes you naive. Well, now I'm back at the Garden of Eden. Maybe I should just trust by faith that God's got it all under control because he's yet to fail. He's yet to do it wrong. So David and all of the people of Israel brought up the ark from the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. Just to remind you, God, your daddy, is still God. And he's not to be trifled with, even though he loves you. He will be honored, he will be respected, and he will remain who he is, not how you or I or someone else wishes him to be. It's not our job to protect him, to explain him away so people think he's nice. It's not our job to rationalize his truth. And it's not our job to even always understand how he deals with mankind to make him more nice and gentle in in, in, in 2018. It's our job to learn about him from his word and get to know him personally, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to him as we understand that through the word of God. That's our job, to offer ourselves a living sacrifice. A word of warning about trifling with God. Revelation 22. John wrote this. On behalf of God, I solemnly declare that everyone who hears the words, these words of prophecy, written in this book, written, the written word of God, not the Holy Spirit in you, the written word of God, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, this book, the written word of God, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in Now you've been warned. Just like the Jews put on the back burner here that God wanted them to carry the ark, it was just a small, minor detail. This small, minor detail is a warning to us today to not trifle with him and his word. You might be thinking, I get why God would take the ark seriously. I mean, it's the throne of God on earth, but the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us its value. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting Christ Jesus. All of Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful. It teaches us what's true, it makes us realize what's wrong in our lives, it corrects us. This is the written Word of God. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what's right. God uses His written Word, the Scriptures, to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. This book that we often take lightly, that we have five or six copies of at home, it's the very words of God, His self revelation to us. God uses it to teach us what's true. He uses it to teach us what's wrong in our lives, and He uses it to equip us for things like moving the Ark of the Covenant. Because this was true even for David. If he would have taken the scriptures seriously, Uzziah would still be alive by the time they get to Jerusalem. If your feelings, your wishes, your dreams, your desires, your ideas of God do not match the simple contextual biblical understanding of who God is and how he interacts with people, then it is you or your favorite preacher or writer that must concede to God as understood him through his word. It is not God that has to be explained further. To add to the scriptures and try to make God become who we wish he was rather than who he actually is, is to trifle with There's a quote by Warren Wiersbe. The church today needs to heed this reminder and return to the word of God for understanding of the will of God. No amount of unity or enthusiasm can compensate for disobedience. When God's word is done in man's way and we imitate the world instead of obeying the word, we can never expect the blessing of God. Now, crowds may approve of what we do, but what about the approval of God? The way of the world is ultimately the way of death. And that's what happened to Uzziah. They acted like the Philistines. Oh, and by the way, if you take God at face value and surrender control of your life to Him, as laid out in Scriptures, this could happen to you. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt. They brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the special tent that David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates uh, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all of his family. Ouch. Nice shot there, Davy. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22, and I love this. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. I don't know if she remained childless because of God's judgment or because they never had sex again. Either case, that is a major slam. Some of you are going, why would you say that? Because that's really an issue. The bottom line is this. My youth pastor used to ask me, Jerry Reif, crazy man, God's Marine, I call him. He used to say, Mark, everybody's somebody's fool, brother. Whose fool are you? And then he would say, I'm a fool for Jesus, Mark. Be a fool for Jesus. Whose fool are you? Who are you listening to? Who are you reading? How serious are you about God being God? How serious are we as a church about God being God? What is our primary core thing that we want to accomplish? In your family, what's the most important thing that you hope for your kids, that you hope for your wife or your husband or your grandchildren? What do we value among everything else? What do we cling to as our source of truth you're thinking he's clinging to an iPad. Within this iPad, I have 648 Bibles. This is spiritual. It actually floats in my office. (laughs) Look, let's do God. Let's not do Baptist. Let's not do American evangelicalism. Let's not do culture. Let's do God. And by doing that, we'll impact all those people. Now one mea culpa. Karen Watson and Connie Dubose did an awesome job discipling my daughter. They don't get a penny of her inheritance because she's going to be richer than all of us. But I was kidding. This is real. This is serious. He invites you to boldly approach his throne, but he doesn't turn into a monkey when you get there. He's still God. Don't forget yourself. Dear Lord, take these words and apply them to our lives.